Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Nikki Whiffen, who is a group leader at the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics in Oxford. Nikki leads the Computational Rare Disease Genomics Group, which uses computational approaches to interpret the role of genetic variants in rare diseases. Nikki, it's so great to have you today. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'd love maybe if we could just start for people who aren't familiar with your work to have a little bit of an overview of what you and your research group are working on and you know how you got to work on rare disease genomics in the first place. Yeah, definitely. So uh, our team looks at trying to find diagnoses for patients with rare disease. So traditionally, our approach is to, well, when a patient turns up in a clinic, they have genetic testing done. And traditionally, the approach is to only look at a very small proportion of the genome, around 1.5%, that directly encodes the proteins uh, that go and do work around our body. With that approach, we're relatively successful. Uh, in some diseases, we can diagnose uh, genetically kind of 90% of patients, but in others, this is severely limited. So it's more like 20 to 30%. And so we're clearly missing something, and we try and figure out a bit more about what we're missing. So we focus on variants that are outside of this protein coding sequence, but our main interests are what we kind of term neocoding, which are regulatory regions that are directly adjacent to these protein coding sequences that have incredibly important roles in regulating the amount of proteins that are produced. Our favorite ones are untranslated regions or UTRs that are directly up and downstream of the protein coding sequence. And they do all sorts of roles like regulating the stability of RNA. So that's the kind of precursor before proteins, so between DNA and proteins. And that RNA kind of persists in the cell and gets translated into protein. Uh, But these untranslated regions uh, regulate how long that RNA persists and the rate at which it is translated into proteins. They have incredibly important regulatory roles. And we're interested in finding uh, the subset of variants within those regions that actually can have severely detrimental effects and lead to disease. So what in terms of kind of scale or real estate, you mentioned about one and a half percent of the genome is coding. What percentage then would be in these near coding regions that you all are looking at roughly? Yeah, so the thing that people don't realize is, is that UTRs are roughly equivalent to the size of the protein coding sequence for each gene. The majority of that is the three prime ends, so they're kind of downstream gene end, which and they're kind of smaller. The five prime ends are upstream is much smaller, so that they can be as small as say I think the average is around two hundred base pairs, but they can be much longer. And actually, we're finding a lot in our research at the moment that genes that are important uh, in their kind of in their dosage. So loss of function intolerant genes tend to have much longer, more complicated UTRs that have more regulation in them to tightly regulate the translation of those important proteins. So how much people listening may be familiar with the triplet code. We've got a pretty good, although not perfect understanding of what a change to a protein coding section of DNA does to the ultimate protein. How much do we know about the code in these near, near coding regions? And where are we at? A few years ago, where are we at today and, and where do we need to be? Uh, we know very little, still know very little. I don't think we've made a huge amount of progress in that code. We need to do a lot of research on that. Uh, one of the things that makes it particularly tricky is when you look at a regulatory element, it acts as a whole. So if you're looking at the triplet code and predicting the effects of a variant on the protein, you can predict that a single variant will change a single amino acid. Whereas in, say, a UTR, a single variant might shift a, a structure which affects the regulation as a whole, or it might have actually no impact, but look like variants that have a big impact if they're in a different portion of the UTR. So it makes this incredibly difficult and you have to look at things on like a, a UTR by UTR basis. And I guess every gene's got different size UTRs, probably different structures within it. Are, are there are there supersets or groups where you can start to say, are there any patterns that you can start to build up or, or is it really starting from a blank slate almost where we know these things have a function, but we're trying to understand the language, so to speak now? Yeah, so the, the UTRs are incredibly variable across different gene sets, not just in terms of length, but also the makeup of different regulatory elements within them. Um, some of the variants we've most recently studied are ones that create upstream start codons. So they create a, just an ATG within the UTR. And that kind of causes the ribosome to pause and decide whether to translate early and can kind of disrupt the translation of the downstream uh, proteins. So these are variants that we know uh, can be very impactful, but again, it, it's very dependent on where they occur and in what context they occur. So it might be that they occur, but they occur downstream of the start that's already been being used, which means that they don't actually get seen by a scanning 
ribosome that does the translating. Or it might be uh, that they are created into a context that actually isn't favorable to the ribosome. So it completely ignores it and keeps scanning and actually makes it to the boundary encoding sequence. So there's a lot more complexity in just creating an ATG. It's what is that context is that created into? What, what are you starting to learn? I think one of the interesting approaches that you and your group take is you look at cases where something has gone wrong with, with one of these near coding regions. So a, a child or an adult has a rare disease that is likely or potentially the result of one of these changes. And, and I, what you can do from this, I think, is start to understand by what happens when we break this element, we can learn a little bit more about the function of the element itself. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that process works, You know what you've learned so far, because sometimes there's a huge amount of value in, in a small number of cases where you can really have a, a breakthrough almost where you understand by understanding what happens when it goes wrong, we can learn something fundamental about how these you know, mis- mysterious parts of the genome work as a whole. Yes, one of the things I find most fun about working in this area is it's not just about finding the diagnoses, it's also about finding something new about fundamental biology and kind of teaching. So the um, upstream start codons that exist in 500CRs are a natural occurrence, actually. So they create what we call upstream open reading frames, or UORF, and these naturally occur, or they're predicted to occur in around half of all known protein coding genes. And just kind of as an example of how little we know about these elements, is I had a talk at the American Society of Human Genetics Conference a few years ago, and it was great fun to stand in front of a crowd of human geneticists and tell them that these elements exist in their genes that they've been focusing on for kind of decades that they've never even heard of before, uh, but they're regulatory elements that are very, very common. But, and we can kind of, by looking at the variation and the way that leads to disease, we can look at when these elements are more, I can't think of the word, not the elements themselves being more deleterious, where they where they have more of an impact on uh, protein translation. So they're, they're kind of cis-regulatory elements that down-regulate protein translation by disrupting this ribosome scanning. But if you find a variant in a patient that's deleterious, you can see, okay, that's obviously a very high impact variant that's having a, a really big effect on downstream protein translation. But then you can look in kind of population controls and say, well, these genes or these particular types of variants don't seem to have such an impact on regulation. And from that, those genetic variants, you can actually learn when these elements are more regulative and when they are kind of not having such a big impact. And what's the estimated impact on patients and diagnoses? I know you worked recently with Jamie Ellingford and a number of other scientists to look at uh, clinical interpretation of variants in non-coding regions. And I, as, as you know, I've been also interested in this since what I did a lot of my research in, and it's still a, an area of clinical practice that's really very challenging. Where are we at today? How many patients do you estimate may have diagnoses that are not being made in most labs around the world because we're not looking at these parts of the genome? People ask me this question all the time, and it's a number that I really, really want to have, like to pull out my back pocket. Sadly, <laughs> we don't have that yet. One of the problems is kind of it's hard to do these analyses to get a, a real number on that because there's also so much noise in the non-coding space. I mean, a lot of work you did during your PhD was had the conclusion that it's individual bases that have an impact. It's not entirely entire regulatory elements. So you, you've got to find ways of filtering the variants that you only got the ones that have a large impact. And if you don't do that properly, you end up with a lot of noise. And one of the ways and the one of the ways you were looking at this was to look at de novo variants, so ones that occur only in a child that has unaffected parents. So they have a higher prior of being a disease causing. And we have some work we're doing in the Genomics England 100,000 Genomes Project at the moment, where a superstar postdoc in the team, Alex Geary, is working to try and look at uh, both de novo and inherited variants and using, we think, hopefully some clever approaches to try and finally put a number on that. What proportion of patients have a likely diagnostic UTR variant or promoter variant or other kind of regulatory variant? But at the moment, we, we don't really know what we're expecting to find. And again, the most progress in this field has come from single gene disorders. So patients where the clinician can say that patient has a variant in that gene. But in a lot of the kind of developmental disorder space, for example, there are so many genes that could be the cause. It's much more heterogeneous, which means that you can't really pinpoint exactly which gene you're expecting to find a variant in. But there's some kind of nice poster child genes. So we did some work recently with Caroline Wright and the uh, develop- Deciphering Developmental Disorders team at the Sanger, And we kind of found this gene called MEF2C, where actually we find that 25% of patients in, in DDD with a MEF2C variant have one in the non-coding region. So for some genes, this non-coding variants are incredibly important. But for others, you can diagnose, say, 90 plus 
percent of patients in the coding sequence. So it's very, very gene region, yeah. everything depends on it. So it's very hard to put a number on that. Do you have a sense of whether that gene MEF2C is more of an exception or more of a rule? Do you think that if you, and, and I, I, I'm asking you to speculate here, I'd be great if you had the data, but yeah, curious whether that is an outlier or not. As high as 25%, I think it's definitely a, more of an exception than a rule. I think most genes, it's going to be lower than that, but it's it's not going to be the only one. And it's some kind of combination. I think I think the main factor for this is probably because it's very dosage sensitive. So even the variants that in some genes we wouldn't think would ever be that deleterious in MEF2C, it seems that they can cause a, bit, a severe developmental phenotype. So that also factors in it. And also just the fact that we had coverage in the sequencing data to actually be able to profile the variants in that region, which is obviously very important to what we can uh, detect because DED, as you know, is based on uh, exome sequencing data. So only capturing the protein coding regions. Uh, however, I was talking to some people yesterday how that's a bit of a misnomer because whole exome sequencing does not sequence the whole exome. Right. There are lots of exons that are non-coding. So whole exome sequencing is a bit of a misleading name for the technology. When you and I were both earlier in our careers, there was, a, and honestly, the term still used, but this term of junk DNA of the non-coding genome being 98% or 80%, depending who you ask, junk. I think we're learning that that's definitely not the case. But I'm curious what piqued your interest in the first place of studying something that a lot of the field said was, you know, basically the actions going on in the protein coding genes. Sure, there's there's some important stuff, but what, what made you interested in focusing on the part that nobody else was was actually all that interested in? Yeah, I think the junk DNA term just kind of highlights how we'd rather discount something that we don't understand yeah. than to realize we have to put a lot of effort into trying to understand it. My PhD was actually on doing a lot of genome-wide association studies in colorectal cancer. And obviously a lot of GWAS hits are found in the non-coding regions. Um, I found that kind of quite unsatisfying because I wanted my research to have more of an impact on patients, which is why I kind of shifted uh, away from GWAS and into the kind of rare variant, uh, rare disease fields. But I think it's part of that that's combined my interest and also just kind of frustration a, a bit in the fact that we ignore. So we, we've spent a lot of effort in trying to find the genes that are involved in certain diseases, but then we ignore half of the gene. So we actually only focus on the bits that code for protein, but we actually know that these genes are important in this disease. So we should be looking at the regulatory elements for those genes as well. But the fact that we don't is, is mainly because we just don't know how. So if I can do a little bit towards trying to teach us how and make some difference in that way, then I think that's a very rewarding thing to do. So that's kind of how I got to this space. But Yeah. And, and I think you all are doing, you're doing really important work. And, and I think Genomics England is doing important work here where they're sitting in between clinical practice and research, because I think one of the challenges has always been if you're running a clinical lab and the question is, do I do I charge somebody a thousand dollars to do a whole genome or 300 to do a whole exome? And we and we only know about the whole exome. So that's all we can interpret. Then it's really clear there's not a justification to insurers or National Health Service or whatever to say we're going to sequence all this stuff that we really don't know anything about. and We can't report on. But you end up in this catch 22 where if you're not sequencing it, then you don't know what we're missing. And so most of the clinical sequencing around the world is either single gene, multi gene panels or starting to be exome. But what I think Genomics England and a few others have done to really start to break this cycle is say we're going to do whole genomes because we don't know what we don't know. And by forcing the issue, we can actually really figure out, you know, is this going to is this going to be worthwhile in the long run? And I think starting to chip away at that and say, how many diagnoses can we get out of this in, in depth sequencing? And I think when you do the math, especially as the cost of sequencing comes down, it's going to start to make sense very soon if it doesn't already that we should just simply be whole genome sequencing and everybody. Right. Even if you can boost diagnoses by five or 10 percent, the impact of that is so enormous on the patients and the costs that it, uh, I imagine the numbers start to add up. Is, is that your view on it as well? Yeah, I, I, I kind of think there might still be some diseases where panel testing makes sense, but it may well be expanded panel testing. And if we know, if we have a set of standardized regulatory regions that also should be included within that panel, then it might make sense. And if we can diagnose 99% of patients using an extended panel, then there is no reason to go down whole genome sequencing. One time where it really can make an impact is where we have these long diagnostic odysseys for these patients. And if you're going in and you're doing karyotyping, then you're doing panel testing, then you're doing exome, then you're finally getting to genome. That's a 
long time for all of those processes to work out. And that's just adding to the kind of uncertainty for these patients. Whereas if we go in with whole genome, we can still focus our search first on this, on kind of expand it as we go along with the kind of more likely candidates first. But the data is already there. And actually, in the long term, you're saving money and you're also kind of saving a lot of kind of time, uh, both for the patient and also for the, the kind of scientists doing the work. Have you all looked at other kinds of sequencing technologies, long read sequencing or, or anything like that? And is, is, is there value to something something beyond the current short read sequencing that we're all more or less used to working with? I think there's definite value, but I, I've not, not looked at any long read data. And one of the kind of uh, really interesting things is being able to do phasing. So, so not necessarily having to have access to parents to be able to know which parent something was diagnosed, to be able to find compound heterozygous variants where and prove Maybe that you could explain, not, not everybody, for those who don't understand phasing, I think it'd be a really important concept. Maybe you could jump in and explain what that is. Yeah, sorry, that, the... that was a big bit of jargon, but I just... No, no, it's great. There. It's really good. I don't think we've had an episode where we've really talked too much about it, but it is, I think it's such an important point, especially in rare disease. Yeah, so this is where you're kind of you inherit one copy of each chromosome from uh, each parent, and it's difficult when you're only sequencing very short sections of that to figure out whether a variant that is 500 base pairs away from a different variant came from the same parent or came from a different parent. So what phasing is trying to do is trying to predict kind of computationally which variants uh, arose on the same like what we call haplotype, but from the same parent, and which ones uh, came from a different parent. And this is important when we're uh, looking at a recessive disease where we need, say, both copies of a gene to be knocked out. And if you see two variants you would expect to knock out a gene on the same haplotype, then that's only going to knock out that single copy. Whereas if it, they occur on the different uh, different haplotypes, they've been inherited from different parents, then you get both copies knocked out. So one of the ways we can find this out is by sequencing the parent, and you can see which parent had which variant. Uh, but that's obviously after the cost. You're doing three times the amount of sequencing. Whereas if you can do phasing, you can find all long read sequencing. You can find this out just from the patient themselves. Having access to phased data and understanding not just the child's genome, but both parents, I imagine is, is really important for what you do, right? Do you have a sense of how much that improves the diagnostic rate or how important it is to actually have that complete family information versus just, just data from an individual? Yeah, I can't remember the numbers um, that um, go with this, but there's been lots of studies that have shown how the diagnostic rate is far higher if you have access to a full trio or at least some family structure rather than just having a sequence of the patient. And one of the reasons for that is we can identify these uh, de novo variants, which we only find a small number in, in each uh, patient, uh, but they have much higher prior of being uh, disease causing when you have unaffected parents and an affected child. Uh, the other explanation for that is recessive disease, like we just spoke about, uh, but that's much higher when you have, say, uh, related parents, then you can kind of hypothesize that it will be a recessive cause. But again, as we just spoke about, you get that phasing information by doing uh, the trio. So trios are, are incredibly valuable, uh, but there are other family structures available as well. So you might have two affected ch- children and then you can have a quad, And but even even having anything other than just the single patient can be very valuable. You, you've done quite a bit of creative work so far in your career. I was always you know, very impressed with with the open reading frame work you were doing, exactly like you said, this is something that nobody really actually was on anybody's radar, but there's actually something really interesting there. There's another one of your papers that I actually bring up a lot because I think it's another kind of non-intuitive but really creative example of genomics and drug discovery, which is some of the work you did as part of the Nomad Consortium on loss of functions in LARC2. It'd be really great to hear from you about how that came about and, and some of the lessons you learned from doing that work. Because I think it's 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 very, it's initially non-intuitive why it's so useful, but then I, I think once you dig into it, it, it certainly for me was a kind of aha moment about how genomic data sets could be used in drug discovery in really creative ways. Yes, this project was a kind of typical science example of some of the big papers come from being in the right place at the right time. So this was a project that uh, Daniel MacArthur had already initiated with 23andMe, uh, where they were interested in kind of showing the value of humans as an experiment uh, for drug discovery. So uh, Parkinson's and LARC2 is quite an interesting example here. So gain-of-function mutations in LARC2 are known to cause uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, so because of this, is huge increase, interest in the pharmaceutical world of trying to develop inhibitors to LARC2 as a treatment for Parkinson's. But when people had kind of modeled this in mice and other model organisms, they've seen some very severe lung, liver, and kidney phenotypes in the kind of knockout animals. 
Uh, but as we know, uh, these animals are models, but they're not they're not actually humans. But this, nature does this wonderful experiment where it introduces all this natural variation. And what can we use for that natural variation uh, to look at what the effect of knocking down uh, a specific drug target might be uh, in humans? And there's a, a great companion paper to this as well by Eric Minical that kind of looks at this on a more broad scale. And LARC2 was just a specific example we were looking at. So what this allows us to do is to look at these loss of function mutations. So where we kind of predicted to lose half a copy of, well, half the amount of protein is what the downstream impact we expect. And look in kind of large scale biobank or data sets with linked health information and say, well, what impact does that have uh, in these people? So this was kind of the, the, the paper full of completely negative results, but that was exactly what we wanted. So I've got all of these flatline <laughs> figures that were, that were quite fun to create, but showing that there, aren't, there doesn't seem to be any increase in any lung liver kidney or other kind of uh, severe phenotypes as far as we could test with the power that we had in humans that have half the amount of LARC2 protein. So what this suggests is knocking down LARC2 by half um, shouldn't be deleterious in w when it's done in, in clinical trials. So this was really kind of positive, positive negative data, which is a really great thing to show. Yeah. And I, I think as a general kind of class of research question, I, I got some advice very early on in my PhD, which was if you focus on a question or set of questions that no matter what the answer is, it's going to be interesting, then you'll be fine. Where you run into trouble is if you have a question that is only interesting if the this one answer or the other. And then as a scientist, you're you're stuck with either getting the interesting answer or, or getting the non-interesting. And, and this is a perfect example of that, where if you'd found that people with a partial knockout of LARC2 end up with significant kidney, liver, lung disease, then that's a really useful piece of information because you can tell the world, hey, we actually do need to be careful inhibiting this protein. And if you find the reverse, that actually we don't see much evidence that there are some people who have this knocked out their entire life in every cell of their body, like you said, by nature, and we don't see kidney disease showing up in their medical records or things like that, then it doesn't mean it's definitely safe, but it's a pretty good indicator. So it's a really good example of that principle. Yeah, it's really important caveats. And um, one of those being that if you have it knocked down from birth, there are potentially like response mechanisms in the body uh, where they can kind of correct for it by maybe upregulating something else, which is not going to be happen possibly if you give somebody a drug later in life. But as you say, it's kind of lifelong knockdown, whereas the therapeutic is only going to be later in life. So it, there's kind of some, it's, it's not the same experiment, but it is, it is kind of promising, uh, promising data. Yeah, that is a really uh, important and interesting caveat, essentially that there may be some kind of compensation where if, if you always have half the protein, then the body figures out a way to, to make it work. But like you say, if you introduce it instantly at some point later in life, you, you can't rely on that compensation to necessarily happen. Yeah, exactly. And we also obviously can't predict off-target effects that the drug might have very easily. And you recently, on the topic of advice to early career researchers, you recently started a research group. I'm really curious, how did it feel day one, walking into the new office? I'm sure it was just you on day one, but you had a plan to build the team. How did that feel? What, what brought you to that moment and, and how's it been? I guess one of the most disorientating things is I didn't walk into a new office. I stayed in exactly the same office in my own house. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> I yeah, started in September 2020, so very much having delayed from June 2020 because I didn't feel like starting a lab in the middle of a pandemic, which shows you a bit of our short-sightedness <laughs> of how long we thought this thing would go on for. Yes. But yes, I started in September and I think got how long it was. I think it was nearly a year before I actually went into the office and found out how tall my team members were. So <laughs> given I managed to delay for that uh, amount of time, I managed to set up some recruitment. So actually, I only had uh, a couple of weeks of being the only member of my team uh, and then very quickly had a a DPhil student and a postdoc and actually an intern uh, joined the group. So that was that was quite nice. The science can be quite an isolating place anyway. You don't want to sit in your own house as the only member of your team for too long. How has that transition been for you personally? What changed from being a postdoc where you were obviously working as part of a team and had, um, you know, often postdocs do work really closely with PhD students and others, but from making that transition then into really being able to set your own 
research agenda in a way you probably weren't able to before. What, what was that like and what were you expecting and how was it? Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's great fun, actually. And I, yeah, I, was, <laughs> I, I learned to code during my PhD. I'm not going to say that I'm the best coder in the world. So it's great to be able to employ people who are better coding, the better at coding than me to actually do uh, my ideas. Uh, but one, I, I love kind of being able to create the environment that I want to work in and making things kind of support supportive and inclusive. And uh, I really enjoy that side of things. Uh, the kind of key difference, I think, in, in the way that you work is as a, as a student or a postdoc, you get to kind of say, oh, today I'm going to work on this. And you get to kind of shut everything down else down for the day and just work on a sole bit of code, sole question for the entire day. As a, as a PI, it's very much you're jumping about every half an hour and trying to reprogram your brain to kind of go from one task to about 20 different things that are on completely different topics. It's, it's quite a challenge. I found that incredibly disorientating uh, to start off with, but I think I've kind of got that one a little bit sorted by this point. And what are you most excited about right now? What are the areas of research you and your team are working on? And also I'd love to hear about any areas that maybe aren't what you're working on, but as a whole, you, you think are exciting for the next coming years that especially ones that maybe aren't on people's radar that you think in a few years will be saying maybe like the open reading frames a, a couple of years ago when nobody was talking about it, but then it, it starts to um, it, it starts to become a lot more of a topic. What what are you most interested in, in in the group and in the industry as a whole? We kind of have yeah quite a broad uh, focus in the group from the very, very clinical stuff. So we've just put out a set of guidelines for uh, how clinically we should interpret variants in the non-coding regions. So that was a really great collaboration with a lot of awesome people that, that think, think in the space. But also, as I said, we're trying to put a number on this, how many patients can we expect to diagnose through using the genomics England data. Uh, but also we're trying to look uh, more on the regulatory side of things and, and really understanding UTRs, hoping that that will help us to interpret variants down the line. So uh, there's a wonderful DFOS student, uh, Nahama, who is looking at kind of how UTRs vary across different gene sets. So as we vary uh, the tolerance to loss of function, we see massive differences in the makeup, the length and the makeup of UTRs. And also if we look at, as a developmental disorder, dominant developmental disorder genes, they look completely different to, uh, to, to kind of genes on a whole. So there's important things to learn about regulation, which hopefully downstream will help us interpret variants. And we've kind of got this big uh, collaboration with Nova Nordisk, who are a Danish company and Joe Housen, who's the head of genetics, to look a bit more about uh, UORFs and UTR variants and their role in more common phenotypes using a lot of UK Biobank data. So really excited about that. And kind of on a whole, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think we're going to learn a lot from having the whole genomes in all of the UK Biobank cohort. I'm really excited to see what people do with that data. I think there's going to be some really awesome things we can, can learn, but also some really cool computational and analytical approaches that people uh, come up with, with how to kind of wrangle that data and learn new insights out of that. So I'm, I'm very excited to see where that takes us. Yeah, I completely agree. Do you think that on the topic of uh, both whole genomes and large scale data sets and also understanding more about the non-coding regions, do you think there are enough people on the planet for us to to actually understand these by looking at human data? And what I mean by that is, you know, if we were to sequence whole genome, everyone on Earth, it's I think it's possible that the complexity in these regions is still too high that we couldn't using data from six billion people alone really pick out which bases are important, which ones are not important, which ones cause disease. I know a lot of people agree with that statement, but a lot of people vehemently disagree with that statement. I'm curious where you fall on that. And, and then maybe we could talk about some of the other strategies to tackle that problem. I think one of the important things is that you don't have to observe a variant to tell something about it. When you get to a certain number of people that we've sequenced, and when you look at variants that are at positions that are highly mutable, the fact that you don't see that variant is as informative as if you see it. So that implies that it's not compatible with life. So with a uh, variation that we already know is, is at saturation uh, at the uh, sample sizes we have now, so I'm talking about C to T changes at CG dinucleotides that are uh, that are methylated, we know they have a very high mutation rate. And just by looking at those variants that you don't see, you can learn a hell of a lot. So I I think the kind of the fact that humans have been under selection for how many number of years means you're not purely looking at a DNA sequence in isolation. You're looking at kind of what's happened in the past. And by combining, if we had six million people's data, that would be amazing. I think we would be able to learn a hell of a lot from that. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I guess it's I need to update my numbers. It's probably seven billion now, right? Six billion is what it was when I, when I was a kid, and that's the number that's burned into my mind, but no longer. Um, well, thank you. I, I I think it's a great note to end on. I really appreciate you taking the time and and talking about your work and being with us today. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, if you want to follow Nikki and her work, she's on Twitter at Nikki Whiffen. Uh, you got the first name last name, which is great. That means that you were you were a little bit early to the party. And I know I just I, have I a very that. obscure name. <laughs> Yes, that's right. I, I couldn't get the Patrick Short, unfortunately, too too common. And I think you're hiring right now, right? So if people want to learn more about your your group, what you do, you're Nikki Whiffin on Twitter, but I think your website as well is rareDiseaseGenomics.org. Maybe you could talk a little bit about who you're looking for and, and what they'd be working on. Yeah, definitely. The best thing to do is to um, find the contact details from the, through the website or just by Googling me. Again, obscure name means I'm very Googleable. Slightly terrifying if I ever do anything wrong. Uh, but we're looking for a kind of a, a senior postdoc to lead a collaborative project with Nova Nordisk that I briefly mentioned, looking at UTR variants and using kind of multi-omic within the UK Biobank. I think it should be a really awesome project. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks, Nikki. And thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, we'd really appreciate if you could share this episode with a friend if you liked it and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. This helps other people find us. So thanks very much for your time. And we'll see you next time.